Our intermission is over. We'll dive in. It's been a good morning all, already. I do recognize um, the clock, and so I will talk quickly. Um, I will do my best to communicate clearly and succinctly this morning. Uh, let's pray as we open God's Word together. Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the gift of your Word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Uh, those who are here, those who are with us online, Lord Jesus, open our ears to hear your voice. Pray that you would bring conviction, that you would bring hope, that you would show us the glory of your love and your mercy. To that end, I pray that you'd guide me, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. In the summer of 1993, I spent a few weeks on staff at a camp in Hope, B.C. called Camp Squia. Um, I hadn't been there before, but anyways, I got there perfect time. At the end of one week, there was going to be a staff retreat. Uh, they were traveling. There was a, a parents of another member of the staff who owned a, a cabin in Orville, Washington on Lake Asuyus. I don't know if any of you have been there. A beautiful area. And so the plan was on Friday to say goodbye to campers, uh, do the cleaning that you had to do as staff, make sure your cabin was in order for the next week, and then hit the road. A friend of mine, Chris, and a, a group of, of her friends... Uh, they were the first ones. They were very eager for this weekend. They'd been working there all summer. They were uh, so excited to get to the beach. And so they, they hustled, and they were the first car off the property. Uh, I finished a little bit later and uh, loaded up with a few people in my car and, and hit the road. Oh, the expectation was that Chris and uh, the gang of girls with her would be at the cabin, that they'd be in Orville, Washington, ahead of everyone else. I mean, they'd left a fair bit ahead of us, certainly ahead of me, and... Uh, when, when I got there, I was surprised to find that they were not there. They hadn't shown up yet. In fact, hours passed. Everyone else was arriving, uh, but Chris and her carload didn't come. And we began to get anxious. The sun set. It was probably around 10 o'clock at night when finally we saw headlights coming down the driveway. And sure enough, it was Chris and, and her friends arriving. And we, we thought, I mean, this is just for those of you uh, particularly who are younger and you're wondering, well, why didn't you just text? This is before cell phones, so... There's no way to communicate. You just, you just don't know. And they, and they arrived and, and kind of uh, sheepishly uh, shared what happened. See, uh, Camp Squia is on the driveway. goes onto Highway 1 directly off the camp property. And so they were very excited to leave. And so they pulled out the, to, the, to the highway and they turned north. For any of you, just quick geography, uh, Washington State is south. Uh, they drove for over two hours. It wasn't until they were at a gas station in Cache Creek and asked the, the gas attendant how close they were to the American border that the terrible reality began to dawn on them. They had driven over two hours in the wrong direction. So four hours or better after they had left Camp Squia, they were driving past the driveway of Camp Squia heading south. They had thought that they were making such great progress. They thought that they were going to be the first ones to arrive. They were so confident. But in fact, they were going in the completely wrong direction. In that moment of dawning comprehension at that gas station in Cash Creek, they realized just how terribly far off they were. That story, that experience illustrates very well for us this morning what Paul will describe in the text we're going to look at. That, that kind of experience that, that Paul had spiritually Earlier in his life, he had a great sense of progressing spiritually, religiously, that he was on track, that he was doing exceptionally well. And then there came a point in his life where he realized that everything he'd been thinking was, was wrong, was turned on its head. 
And what he used to think, he no longer thinks now. What he used to value, he no longer values now. Uh, we've been, uh, and take a few moments just to remind you what we covered immediately before this. We, we have turned to the last half of Philippians. Uh, Paul in the, remember Paul is in prison in Rome writing to this church that he planted about a dozen years earlier. He's aware from Epaphroditus two primary issues. One, there's external uh, persecution and so the church is beginning to experience some suffering. But internally there is relational tension. There's some problems relationally within the church. So Paul has been addressing that and primarily he's been focused on that relational aspect. He's called them to unity. He's called them to oneness, to stand uh, as one, to strive together for the gospel in Philippi, to put the interests of others ahead of their own interests, to have the mindset of Christ Jesus in all that they do. That has been what he's done and uh, been talking about, and he's shifted uh, our focus. He talked about travel plans. He's going to send Timothy. He hopes to go and, and Epaphroditus. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and then last week he moves into a new section of the letter, and uh, we looked at it. Paul is going to remind the Philippians of the gospel, and in the context of reminding them of the gospel, he's going to give them a warning. Remember, watch out for those, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That is, he's warning the Philippians about those who would add anything to faith in Christ as, as important, as bearing any weight when it comes to being saved. That is, there is either Judaizers or this Judaizing way of thinking that would say the gospel plus something. Uh, this kind of argument and teaching had dogged Paul's t- a number of churches that Paul planted and, and where people are saying, okay, to really be part of God's people, you need to trust Jesus and you need to observe Jewish boundary markers, particularly the, the right of circumcision for men. So that's what's been going on to this point. Uh, the text we are going to pick up uh, carries on this, this argument. So uh, in verse 3, last week, we, Paul said this, For it is we who are the circumcision. He's writing this. Paul, a Jewish man, writing to a predominantly, if not entirely, Gentile church. We who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He made the point in the text we looked at last week that that it's not about the physical right of circumcision. It's about the spirit. Now what marks you out as belonging to God is the spirit of God through faith in Christ. You belong to Christ, and so you belong to the people of God. That is the basis, and so he says, we are the circumcision, both Jew and Gentile alike. We who boast in Jesus, we look to Jesus and Jesus alone, and we put no confidence in the flesh. But remember, verse 4, the last part of our paragraph, there was a bit of a teaser for this week. Paul said this, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, that is confidence in the flesh. And that's where we're picking things up today, uh, the second part of verse 4 uh, through to nine. And again, the argument will carry on. We'll look at the, the next part next week. Beginning of verse four, uh, halfway through. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and being found and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith." 
I want to walk through this part of Paul's argumentation uh, with, under, under three headings. Paul's great pedigree and achievements, Paul's great turnaround or reversal, and God's great gift. Paul's great pedigree and achievements, Paul's great turnaround or reversal, and God's great gift. Remember, it's so important to understand that, that the verses we're looking at now are, are just continuing what we looked at last week, where Paul is wanting to remind the Philippians now, right? He's been telling them to stand as one, to, to stand, to strive together for the gospel. And so here's, last week, he's reminding them, here's the gospel, and here's the threat to the gospel. This non-gospel, this, this saying, a hey, Jesus plus circumcision. And so he's warning them, and he's just continuing that argument. These Judaizers, these people who would think this way, are saying, oh, it's, it's circumcision as well that's important to mark you as belonging to God, as his people. And so Paul here says, hey, if, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Essentially he's saying, hey, if you want to play this status game, I can play, and I'll beat you. Paul points to seven things. A number of them are things that are simply inherited. He had nothing to do with. And, and a number of them are his own achievements. We're going to walk through each of those seven. He begins with the, the key issue for these Judaizers, for those, those who would think that what marks you as belonging to God's covenant people is not only Jesus, but this physical rite of male circumcision. He says, I was circumcision. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I said last week that God gave his old covenant people, the nation of Israel, the sign of circumcision as a sign of belonging. In fact, in Genesis 17, God says to, to Abraham, every male in your household is to be circumcised. This is to be the symbol of belonging to God's people. And that was the old covenant sign of belonging. It was important. In fact, uh, we read in, in verse seven, uh, sorry, chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 12, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Now, so that was the proper way, on the eighth day. We need to understand this. Abraham was 99 when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13. All the male members of his household were a variety of ages, just as any, anyone who converted to Judaism uh, would have been not eight days. Typically, they'd been all, all over the place. But for those boys born in Israelite Jewish families, they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so Paul, Paul was an eight-dayer. He'd been circumcised, done right, right? Exactly as prescribed by the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, he says he's of the people of Israel. The Judaizers' aim was to make Gentile believers part of God's people, essentially. This is how you belong to God's covenant people. you got to be, be circumcised. Well, Paul trumpets the fact that he was already had that privilege by birth, not only circumcised on the eighth day, but he's, he's an Israelite. This is, this is where he belongs. I mean, he's born into this. If you were to ask me my background, you know, what, what am I? I mean, I, I might say Canadian, but, but I've often, I've kind of said, oh, I'm, I'm German. You know, I grew up my parents and grandparents, they all spoke German. And, and, but if you ask me, well, were you born in Germany, Dennis? I would say, no, I was actually born in Vancouver. And, well, how about your parents? Your parents were born in Germany. Well, no, actually, they were born in Paraguay, South, uh, South America. Well, then your grandparents, well, they actually came from the Ukraine. Like, I, I'm actually not sure where Germany came, but I would, like, I would say I, I'm German. Like, that's my ethnic background, and yet it's kind of convoluted and hard to trace out. Not for Paul. Uh, he, he is an Israelite. 
of the people of Israel. Third, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Some of you will remember Benjamin. Benjamin was one of two privileged sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of his favorite wife. That's another whole story. But, but Benjamin became the, the father of a tribe, a tribe named Benjamin, right? Benjamin is the tribe from which Israel's first king came, Saul. Paul's Hebrew name, Saul, is, is the king, the Israel's first king's name. And, and Benjamin is also the tribe, the territory where the holy city Jerusalem was located. And, and Benjamin was the one tribe that stayed loyal to Judah, to the covenant of David, when the ten northern tribes broke off and Israel was split into two, two countries, two nations. Benjamin was this loyal tribe. Fourth, Paul speaks of himself as being a Hebrew of Hebrews. Really, this is a summary. It's, it's redundant. He's saying, uh, circumcised eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the, the great tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. He's saying his credentials rock. I mean, he, he is pure Hebrew stock. And at this point, he shifts. All of those things are things that, that he inherited. He had nothing to do with. But he shifts from those to his own achievements. The fifth thing he says is, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisee, uh, that was a sect within Judaism. It was a, a lay movement, but it, it began about two centuries before Jesus came on the scene. And it was, it was a group of men who were very passionate for obedience to God's law. Uh, it, it, many of what was on their heart as this movement began, those are good, godly things. Obedience matters. The Jews were supposed to obey the law. The Pharisees really, really cared about the law. Uh, they cared so much that they thought, well, we need to we need to bring greater clarity. So they actually came up with 613 additional laws, laws to bring clarity. 365 negative ones, things you shouldn't do. Uh, 248, I think it is, don't ask me to do math, positive things. So they, they knew the law said that you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, so he had to define what is work, what, what exactly is work. And so they had all these laws to bring clarity. They essentially built a fence because they were so concerned with obeying God. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. Sixth, as for zeal, he persecuted the church. As one who, who followed Yahweh, the one true God, he it, it became angry when Christianity was born because these people were worshiping Jesus as if Jesus were God. This man, and, and Paul saw that as blasphemous, and so he, he hunted down Christians. When Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, Paul was like the coat check guy. Say, hey, leave your coat here. You have both arms free. You can, you can chuck the rocks better. He stood there giving his approval as Stephen was stoned to death. Zealous for God's name. Seventh Paul concludes his narrative with this statement, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now Paul's not saying somehow that he was sinlessly perfect, that the law not only made provision for, but called for sacrifices for our sin, burnt offerings, the, the annual day of atonement. But, but it, with regards to outward conduct, his behavior, Paul kept the law. Did Paul observe the Sabbath? You got it. Did he wash his hands ceremonially every time before he ate? For sure. Did he observe the high holy days? Check. Like Paul did it. He hit it out of the park. He obeyed everything. As far as the law was concerned, he was faultless, scrupulous in his obedience. That's Paul's story. This, this autobiographical part of, of this letter where he just, he just shows his credentials he certainly appears to be a man who has his spiritual act together. I mean, this is someone that, 
that other Jewish people would have looked up to and aspired to be like. Let's turn from Paul's great pedigree and achievements to Paul's great turnaround, this great reversal. Verse 7, Paul writes this, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Alistair Begg describes what we encounter here as accountant theology. Not sure if there's any accountants in the building, maybe some online. I'm not an accountant, but I'm learning a few things. And so I want us to think balance sheet. A balance sheet, I think I got this straight. Balance sheet lists in one column are your assets, what you have, what is of value. And in another column, it lists your liabilities, your debts, what is bad, if you will. Paul says, Paul says that what he used to count as an asset, what he used to see as gain, what he used to see as positive, is now not positive anymore. He doesn't value it anymore. It's no longer an asset. It is the, 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 the balance sheet has flipped. A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was at home doing our finances. I, I enter receipts in a computer program and try and track what's in what account. And I opened our online credit card statement and there was this $248 charge to Brennan's High School. And I thought, what? Hate school fees? I said, Chrislene, what is this for? She said, I didn't do that. I'm like, I didn't do it, who did it? This $240 charge, like what? And so I was a little miffed and I got on the phone and I called McNally and I said, oh, I just got this charge, what's going on? Well, we'll transfer you over and they transfer, bounced me around a few people and the woman said, I, I don't know, let me look into it and she looked and and then she said, um, that's actually a credit from Brennan's volleyball season. And in a moment, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I just missed reading it correctly. The balance sheet flipped. And in a moment, instead of owing $248, we got a credit. It was awesome. Paul says, what I saw as gain is now loss. In fact, he's going to go on and he's going to say he considers it garbage. I want you to remember the context here. Paul is, is he's explaining, he's reminding the Philippians of the gospel, and he's warning them of the dangers of adding anything to the gospel, of putting any merit, any value on anything other than Jesus. I love, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of Scripture in the message. He, he says this, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Verse 8, he, he says, I consider them garbage. That's actually toned down. The, the word translated here is in, in, in the Greek world, it's, it's a term of vulgarity. I mean, it's, that's why the King James Version uh, Says, translated as dung. I mean, he's saying all of that is, is, all of that is, it's garbage, it's crap. I mean, that sounds crass, but that's essentially what he's saying. All the things that I valued, all the things that I, I thought meant I was doing really well are garbage, they're refuse, they're loss. Why? Because Paul has realized that once what he once prized, his status, his pedigree, his achievements, his performance, are, are, are now on the wrong side of the ledger. And, and because what is of value is knowing Christ, knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And, and, 
As we hear Paul speak here, I'm reminded of the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13 of the, the, the treasure hidden in a field. Jesus says a man is in a field and he's digging and he finds this great treasure and, and he buries it again and he goes and he sells everything he has, everything. He just, everything's gone. The car, the season's tickets, everything. So that he can go buy that field because that treasure is worth so much. Paul says, I count everything I used to value as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. This is not for Paul. The, the life of discipleship, a life of uh, the Christian life is, is not about being religious. It's not about certain rites and ceremonies. It's not about rule following. Christianity, he says, is about a relationship with a person, with Jesus, a relationship of intimacy, knowing that you are loved, knowing that you belong, knowing that you are treasured, that you are cherished. Next week, as we continue on here, we will focus more on this surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But Paul's mind has shifted from the, the religious life he was living to this relational life with Jesus. It brings us to the third thing, God's great gift. Because how do you have this relationship with Jesus? How do you experience this intimate relationship of love and belonging with Jesus? How, how, do, you, how do you be found in him, to use the language of this text? Here's what Paul writes in verses 8 and 9. Speaking of all the things that he used to value, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. How is one found in Jesus? Not through religious performance. Not through being good enough. See, a big part of our problem is our failure to truly grasp the depth of our sin, the gravity of the situation in which we are in. Over my more than two decades of serving as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I have in conversation heard from people say, well, I'm a good person. She's a good person. He's a good person. Pretty good person. I've heard that so many times, and there's this complete failure to grasp what the Bible tells us about each one of us. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does, does good, not even one. See, here's the deal. God will not judge us on a curve. God, God, we are called, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a pretty high standard. And if we think that by our performance somehow we're going to attain it, we're deluding ourselves. Crystalline uh, does not love cooking, though I think she's quite good at it. Um, but one of the things that often happens when she cooks is she doesn't always follow a recipe very closely. Sometimes that's because there's celiac, she has celiac disease, a couple of our boys, and so you have to substitute things and change things up. Sometimes, I'm sure you encounter this, it's because you don't have the right ingredients in the house, so you, you change things. Sometimes it's just because she's really creative, and she adds a little bit of this and that. And, and I, I love eating what she cooks. There are days where it's amazing, 
And on those days, I have learned to ask this question, did you follow a recipe? Uh, meaning, could you do this again? And often her answer is, yes, mostly. <laughs> Except for this, and this, I added this, I didn't do this. And I'm like, ah, I don't know that you'll be able to reproduce this. Right, because you, you can't mostly follow a recipe and, and do it again. Righteousness is like that. You can't mostly be righteous. Righteousness is an all or nothing deal. You can't be mostly righteous. If you're mostly righteous, that means you've sinned, you've been unrighteous, which makes you unrighteous. And, and that's our problem. Not one of us is good, according to God. Not one of us is good enough. You cannot do enough to clean up your life. And even, fantasize for a moment, even if you could live righteously from this day till the day you die, you can't make up for all your screw-ups in the past. We, no one is good is the biblical message. You cannot make yourself right with God. You can't be mostly righteous. And here's what we need to understand. The, the gospel message, the gospel, the good news is that God sent his son Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to, to bear the consequences for our sin. But, but that's only half the gospel. See, I used to, when I was a young man, I used, to, I used to get that. Okay, Jesus died for my sins, he forgave me. And I had this sense that he's washed me clean, and now I gotta buckle down and keep myself clean. When, when Christine and I got married, we had seven flower girls, six nieces of hers, and uh, the daughter of friends of mine. They were all dressed in uh, white dresses. Our, evening, our, our wedding was in the evening. We had photos for like forever in the afternoon. And I can only imagine now, I wasn't a parent at the time, I can only imagine the challenge for my brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law as they had to keep all those girls clean in these white dresses for hours. They, they were seven to four, seven of them. And some of the pictures were outside. Like, can you imagine? See, the, the gospel is not only that Jesus died for our sin. It, it's that, absolutely. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. He washed us. He made us clean. But he didn't just only make us clean. He also clothes us with his perfect righteousness. We receive the gift of his righteousness. The, the, this is, the theological term is the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's death for us secures our forgiveness and, and Christ's life for us, is, we, we, we receive credit. In our ledger, if you will, back to the balance sheet, we receive credit for his perfect obedience. And so our salvation, our being found in Christ is not based on your performance, on my performance, on us somehow being good enough. And Paul recognizes that and he says, all that I used to value I consider garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, being found in him through the righteousness that is a gift from God, through faith. I need to trust Jesus. I need to come to Jesus and say, I can't do it, Jesus. And Jesus pours out his grace, pours out his mercy, and he covers us, he clothes us, he credits us with his perfect righteousness. There are many in our world today who hold to the belief that, that all religions 
are substantially the same and only superficially different. I'm going to contend that when it comes to Christianity, the opposite is true. Christianity, there, there are things that we can look at in Christianity and some of the other uh, world religions, other faiths that are similar, a call for, for honesty, a call for generosity. But Christianity is only superficially the same. It is, it is substantially, radically, at its core, different. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of having lunch with an acquaintance. He's Indian. Told me in the course of our lunch that he and his family practice both Hinduism and Sikhism. And we, I, I listened, I asked questions, and he shared about some of the things that they, they did as part of their faiths. And then... At one point, I had the opportunity to say, can I share a little bit about my faith, about the Christian faith? He was very open to hearing. And I said, you know, many people believe that all religions are essentially the same, that they, they're just different paths up the mountain to God. And he's like, yeah, I totally, like, that makes sense. That's what I, that's how I think. I said, you know, Christianity is radically different. Christianity is not a path to God. Christianity is actually about God coming to save us. And I was able to talk about guilt from sin and how we can't fix things. But, but God in his son Jesus became a man and came and he paid the price. He suffered in our place. And through trusting in him, we're both forgiven and we're clothed. We're credited with God's righteousness. We're brought into right standing with God, something we could never achieve by our own striving, our own efforts. And my friend sat there and, and he, he just, he said, no one has ever told me that. I never understood that. Christianity is unique. What Christ has done is unique. Christianity is not about us somehow pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, getting our act together, being good enough. We can't. But we don't need to be. Because Christ has offered himself in our place to bear the penalty that we deserve. Christ offers us his perfect righteousness that we're clothed with. And we are found in Christ through faith in Christ by saying, Jesus, you are my only hope. Apart from you, I have no hope. And when we trust Jesus, we are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are clothed with his perfection. Our identity changes radically. We are adopted as daughters and sons of the Father. And then the Christian life is learning to live out of that new identity. Not trying to produce something, not trying to get right with God. My friend Chris and the girls in her car were driving in a completely wrong direction, pursuing the wrong things. If, if we seek to approach God by producing, by performing for him, thinking at all that, that we need to get this right in order for him to love us, in order for him to accept us, I just want to say to you, you you're driving in the wrong direction. The gospel is God's free, an amazing gift of, of grace, of forgiveness, of righteousness, of, of, of right standing with him. It comes from God, not from you, not from me trying harder. And it's only when we receive that, when we recognize that, when we rest in that reality that we will grow in freedom from sin, that we will be conformed increasingly into women and men, young and old, who reflect the image of Christ. Because we're not doing it out of fear, we're not doing it in order to try and merit something, in order to try and, and get God to accept us, but because we know that we are loved and accepted and forgiven and righteous already. That's good news. That's what Paul wants the Philippians to see. 
He does not want them to be led astray by those who would say, Jesus plus anything. No, only Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him. The basis of righteousness that comes from God. The basis of faith. Psychologist and author, spiritual director Larry Crabb, in his book, The Pressure's Off, contends that there are two basic approaches to life, the Christian life. Two pathways. The old way is a way of striving. Trying to accomplish, trying to get what you want most. And then in Christ there is the new way, the way of the Spirit. He writes this, you have realized that what you most want is beyond your reach and you're trusting God for satisfaction, the satisfaction you seek. You want Him. Nothing less. Not even the blessings. His blessings will do. You want Him. I want to remind those of you who are believers in Christ, this is the gospel. As you look back on your week and you recognize the places where you've fallen down and scraped your spiritual knees, I just want to to remind you that your righteousness has never been dependent on your performance for Christ. It's a gift from God to you. You are clothed with it. You are secure in Christ. And to those of you who are with us this morning who have never trusted Jesus, I want you to leave this place with this crystal clear. Christianity is not about you cleaning yourself up. It's not about you being good enough. It's about you realizing that you can't be. And simply coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you. I surrender. I I give myself to you. Come. Come and rescue me. Come, forgive me. Come, clothe me with your perfection. Come, Give me rest that I will only find in you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I marvel. We marvel at the good news. Jesus, your amazing love, your amazing mercy, your amazing redemptive work. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would guard us from the lies that that we hear, that we wrestle with, Lord, that we would understand that you and your love have redeemed us, that your redemption is is pure gift. Teach us to rest. And Lord, fill our hearts with joy. In your name we pray. Amen.